It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to something a little bit different. At the end of last year, we struck up an affiliation with an organization called Ons Erfdale, which celebrates Flemish and Dutch culture through a website called The Low Countries. Together, we are making a series of podcasts for them called The Low Countries Radio. There will be six episodes this year on various topics in which the Low Countries have had an influence on the world. The first episode, which came out in February, is about the history of cycling in the Netherlands and can be found at the-low-countries.com. The second episode, which came out a couple of weeks ago, is about the 15th century lowlander artist Jan van Eyck and the history of his most famous work, the Ghent Altarpiece. The Low Countries Radio is different from History of the Netherlands, and we didn't want to confuse things by putting those episodes up on this feed. That being said, in our series chronology, we are currently hanging around the same time period as Jan van Eyck, who lived from the 1390s to the 1440s. And we even spoke about him during our most recent episode about Burgundian culture during Philip the Good's reign. So we've decided to drop this on our feed as a bit of a, hey, it's Monday special. Please be warned that it is different from history of the Netherlands. In the intro, you will hear the lovely tones of Dave, who usually sits quietly in the background, making maps and planning our episodes. There are little musical interludes within, all of which were written by early Netherlandish composers influenced by the Burgundian school of composition, which we spoke about in our previous episode. With all that out of the way, we really hope you enjoy this. For more info and generally a fantastic resource into all sorts of Dutch and Flemish stuff, head to the-low-countries.com. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website. Celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. Jan van Eyck, one of the Low Countries' most famous artists, lived through an extraordinary period in history between the 1390s and the 1440s. Although much about the early Netherlandish painter's life is completely unknown, the details which do remain provide tantalizing glimpses into an artistic and technical talent who was both socially and politically capable enough to be able to ingratiate himself within the highest ranks of power in his time. Van Eyck's cultural influence has continued in the five and a half centuries since his death. In Flanders, the year 2020 is being celebrated as the year of Fun Ache. So to pay homage, in this episode, we will explore the life and works of Jan Fun Ache 
and the mystery surrounding the theft of part of his most famous work, the Ghent Altarpiece. Many basic facts about Jan van Eyck's life are a complete mystery, especially of his early years. We do not know the date of his birth. Suggestions range from 1380 to 1400. Neither do we know his place of birth. He is thought to have been born in one of the smaller territories in the Low Countries, Lone, in today's eastern Belgium. But since no registration of his birth has ever been found, Exactly where this happened is still up for debate. Many historians have spent their entire careers arguing about the details of Van Eyck's background, and the results are so often inconclusive. So if you find yourself wondering about some detail of his life as we go along, the answer is probably nobody knows. Jan is believed to have had at least two brothers, Hubert and Lambert, although Lambert may have been a half-brother, and one sister, Margrethe. Though Margrethe could be confused in the historical record with Jan's future wife of the same name. But let's just run with the idea that there were four of them. All of these siblings were, apparently, painters. Hubert seems to have been much older, and the first existing record of him is from 1409, when he was commissioned to paint a tableau for the altar at a convent in Tongeren. It is likely that Jan and Lambert apprenticed with him and that over their careers, they all worked together and would end up running a workshop first in Ghent and then in Bruges. But how, where, and from whom they learned to paint is, you guessed it, unknown. So, although we don't know much about the Van Eyck family's childhood, we can assume a couple of things. Clearly, they received a very good education. The work that came out of the Van Eyck Brothers' workshop would be littered in classical and biblical references and symbology. In her definitive account of the Van Eyck Brothers, art historian Elizabeth Darnans suggested that they were of noble descent. She brought focus to the coat of arms on his gravestone, which bore three iron mills in one of its quarters. The mills come from the coat of arms of the Lords of Udenrode, a powerful noble family from northern Brabant. The implication is that Jan and his siblings stemmed from this family, possibly being an offshoot bastard branch. So, perhaps the Van Eyck's grew up in a household with the means to provide the education and support needed for their artistic talent. Around the end of the 14th century, the Low Countries underwent drastic transformation, politically, economically, socially, and culturally. They went from being a patchwork of independent duchies, counties, and prince bishoprics, ruled by different, albeit intermarrying families, to becoming pretty much ruled by one person, the Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Good. The political events which led to this union would have a huge impact on Van Eyck's career. At the turn of the 15th century, the southern areas, particularly Flanders and Brabant, were more urbanized and economically prosperous than their northern neighbors. 
Holland, however, was beginning its rise. The herring and shipbuilding industries were rocketing ahead, and continued urbanization increased the commercial strength of towns, which gave basis for international merchants to invest in places like Amsterdam, Dordrecht, Leiden, and Rotterdam. When the Count of Holland, William VI, died unexpectedly from complications arising from a nasty dog bite in 1417, a civil war erupted between his daughter and heir, Jacqueline of Bavaria, and her uncle, John of Bavaria. By 1421, Jacqueline was forced to flee to England, and Uncle John was left ruling Holland from The Hague. And it is there, in The Hague, in 1422, that Jan van Eyck finally appears in the historical record. At The Hague, he was employed by John of Bavaria as his court painter. Having successfully claimed the title of Count of Holland, John of Bavaria now needed to cement his authority there. Civil wars are wars of identity amongst the people, and John used art as a weapon on that battlefield. Patronage of the arts was becoming an important means for rulers in the Low Countries to display their wealth and their power. By funding artworks, John could promote the idea of a centralised culture in Holland with himself at the centre. John of Bavaria therefore ordered Jan van Eyck, his court painter, to repaint the interior of the palace in The Hague, the Binnenhof. Frustratingly, almost all of the work that Jan did in those early Hague years is completely lost, with the exception of some tiny, detailed, and beautiful illustrations in something called the Turin Milan Hours. This is a beautiful, though now partly destroyed, historical document. Basically a really fancy illustrated prayer book that some French royals started around the 1380s. The book passed into the hands of various rulers, mostly in the French royal family, who would then commission artists to contribute illustrations to it. By the 1420s, it had come into the possession of John of Bavaria. In the book, there are three pages by an artist today referred to as Hand G, which display the high level of skill and style for which Jan van Eyck and his brother Hubert became recognised. Given both of them were within close proximity of the book, it is certainly possible and likely that they contributed in some form. In January 1425, John of Bavaria died. Over the course of months, he had been slowly poisoned through the sheets of another, less fancy prayer book. When this happened, Jacqueline of Bavaria once again lay claim to Holland, but now she had to contend with her very powerful cousin, the young Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Good. Within three years, Philip had trampled Jacqueline's dreams and established himself as the top dog in the Low Countries, adding the Count of Holland to his growing collection of titles. Most importantly for this story, Philip would advance a remarkable relationship with Jan van Eyck, influencing both of their lives, their careers, and the world around them. Jan van Eyck returns south after John of Bavaria's death, heading first to Bruges, and then to Lille. As early as May 1425, he was documented as the court painter of Philip the Good himself, and by the end of the year was also being paid as one of his chamberlains, or 
valet de chambre, as it's fancily known in French, a servant of the prince's household. As Chamberlain, Jan played a political role as well, working as an ambassador for the Duke and doubtless having both Philip's ear and confidence. For his art, he was kept on a constant retainer. Philip was basically paying Jan to do whatever he wanted, meaning he could put time into experimentation and the refinement of his skills, and also generally do paintings for whomever he wanted. Van Eyck was a great exponent of using oil-based paintings in his work, as well as a drying agent which was becoming popular for artists in the Low Countries at the time. His expertise in applying specific layers of colour, of varying transparency or opaqueness, and being able to apply extra layers meant that he could portray depth and light and texture in a way that must have been absolutely mind-blowing at the time. Few artists had such skill, and this would lead him to erroneously being called the inventor of oil paintings for centuries. There can be little doubt that his proficiency at using the less common oil-based paints did have a major influence on artists around him, as well as raising the bar for what patrons and buyers of paintings would come to expect. Van Eyck would by no means be the last great artist to come out of the Low Countries, and indeed, he had skilled contemporaries whose names have not been forgotten, such as Rogier van der Weyde. It is interesting to ponder, though, whether the environment simply existed at this time, in the Low Countries, for talented artists to fulfil their potential, or whether early geniuses like Jan van Eyck and van der Weyde inspired a cultural appreciation of art and artists that would carry on long after them. But at this stage of his career, his political tasks were just as interesting as his artistic ones. In August and October of 1426, he was paid for two trips, one of which is believed to have taken him all the way to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage on behalf of his lord. The other is thought to have taken him to parts of the Ottoman Empire. The evidence to support this theory is a painting called Three Marys at the Tomb, largely agreed to be by Van Eyck. The buildings in the background very closely resemble buildings found in and around Jerusalem, suggesting that he had actually seen them himself. With his incredible memory and preservation of details, he could accurately recreate them or at least describe them, perhaps in collaboration with his brother. What business he conducted for Philip in the East can only be guessed at, and the only thing we can take for certain is that he was highly trusted and viewed as skilled enough to also handle non-artsy work on behalf of the Duke. The young prodigal talent thus observed and thought about a far greater scope of landscapes, architecture, people, cultures, food and languages, as well as political arrangements, dilemmas and understandings. Over his career working for Philip, Jan would undertake numerous secret missions to faraway places or be trusted to handle and transfer secret items. The mystery of his life is certainly not limited to the centuries that followed it, but rather came to define his role in the court of Philip the Good. In 
1420, Jan's older brother Hubert had taken a commission from a wealthy Ghent patrician couple, Josfeid and Elizabeth Borlut. They wanted him to make an altarpiece that would go in the Cathedral of Ghent, St. Bafos. In 1426, however, around the time that Jan was paid for those first secret missions, Hubert died, leaving behind him a workshop with unfinished work, including the Ghent altarpiece. Either Jan, Lambert, maybe Margrethe, or all of them, took charge of Hubert's workshop and assigned the completion of various pieces to his assistants, as well as taking on some work themselves. Was Jan familiar with what plans Hubert had already made for the Ghent altarpiece? Had he even done any work at his brother's workshop in recent years? Or was it a totally new project that he had suddenly inherited? Either way, over the following eight years, Jan and his assistants would embark on creating what would become the most famous Van Eyck work ever, and they finished the Ghent altarpiece. However, despite this mammoth undertaking, throughout those eight years, Jan also continued to do other works at the Duke's request, as well as carrying on with his diplomatic tasks. The best known of these came in 1429, when he travelled to Portugal to produce portraits of Princess Isabella. Philip the Good's first wife had died, and in his political manoeuvrings, he had landed on a prospective marriage alliance with the Portuguese royal family who had offered him Isabella's hand. Van Eyck was sent to be a part of the negotiations and also to produce two portraits of the princess for his lord to be able to inspect. One was to be sent back by sea and the other one by land. Such an undertaking would have required Van Eyck spending an extended period of time in Portugal. Not only did he have to source and make his particular choice of paints, but also he needed to think about and prepare the composition of the pieces, all while participating in the negotiations for the future marriage alliance. But finally, he would have also sat for hours with the princess herself while he painted her. And perhaps this is where we can see the kind of value that someone like Jan van Eyck provided to a powerful and political beast such as Philip the Good. Although this was a highly misogynistic time, Philip came from a family where the women took an active role in the governance of land, often when their husbands were absent for whatever reason. Surely Philip would have wanted to know the character he was going to be marrying, if she would, in fact, be up to the challenges she was bound to face in her new demanding role as the Duchess of Burgundy. Having a trusted and loyal man like Van Eyck, able to sit privately and talk with her for extended periods, would have allowed for some sort of assessment to be made. We can only speculate, but we would argue that this is a pretty healthy speculation. Both of the paintings that came from this assignment are now lost, and only one is roughly known about because of a few copies that remain. After they were sent off, Isabella of Portugal had to wait for Philip's response. Dating in the 15th century wasn't quite as fast as Tinder, while everyone waited for Philip's reaction, the Low Country Embassy made a pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela and even met with the King of Castile and the King of Granada. After nine months in the sunny south, Philip finally swiped right, and Van Eyck was able to return by ship, along with Philip's bride-to-be, Isabella, 
they arrived in Slaves near Bruges on Christmas Day 1429. At some point, Jan van Eyck moved to Bruges and set up shop there permanently. From the summer of 1432 until his death, he paid an annual mortgage for a house and studio in the city. Ghent and Bruges were both extremely strong, proudly Flemish, but also autonomously minded towns who had a fair bit of historical beef between them, stretching back through the centuries. It is a quirky twist that in the cultural game of my steeple is bigger than yours, neither of them can solely claim Van Eyck, despite how significant they both were in his life, and notwithstanding the fact that he himself was not even Flemish. In the same year that he started living in Bruges, 1432, the construction of painted wooden panels which make up the Ghent altarpiece was unveiled in its completion. It was, and is, undoubtedly a masterpiece, painted to hang in the church and to incorporate the natural light and shadow of the building itself into the images on the panels. The side panels are wings that fold out, which means the painting can be viewed either opened or closed. Even when closed, it is a large piece of work measuring 3.75 by 2.6 meters. One can imagine the impression this would make for those looking up at it from below. When closed, it shows two horizontal scenes, one above the other. In the upper panels, prophets look down upon the Annunciation when Archangel Gabriel was giving Mary the good news. Below them are portraits of Josfade and his wife, Elizabeth Borlut, the couple who had commissioned the work. In the 12 years since that commission had been given to Hubert, Josfeid had actually become an alderman of the city and then a mayor of Ghent. Now, as the cherry on top, he and his wife's faces were hanging in prime position in the biggest church in town. Good thing they were still together, though, because otherwise that could have been awkward. In between the pious-looking couple are then images of John the Baptist and John the Evangelist. The general tone of the closed display itself is quite somber and, one could argue, dullish? And that is made even starker when the polyptic is opened. During feast days and times of celebration in the town, the great wings would be unfolded, giving the piece a total size then of 3.4 by 4.6 metres, revealing inside a stunning, bright and colourful scene a heavenly cast of Adam and Eve, angelic singers and musicians, God, Mary and John the Baptist, the A-team of Christianity basically, all look down upon a lamb. The lamb is standing on a pedestal in a field, radiating holiness and surrounded by hundreds of people, coming from all corners of the world, streaming towards it while it calmly bleeds into a golden chalice, like literally squirts blood from its chest into a cup. In the distance, the horizon is dotted with different buildings. To the viewer's left, you can see the St. Nicholas Church of Ghent, and on the right, you can clearly make out the tower of the Cathedral of Utrecht. 
Between these only two recognizable structures, however, in the center of the background behind the lamb, other buildings represent a fictional place, which has been imagined as Van Eyck's idea of a new Jerusalem. Presumably, this theory suggests that the Holy Land, according to Jan van Eyck at least, is somewhere between Utrecht and Ghent. So, Breda? Many of Van Eyck's surviving famous works come from the period after the unveiling of the Ghent altarpiece, when he was arguably in his pomp, at his peak, and performing without par. The man in a red turban from 1433 is thought to be a self-portrait of the master himself. It is also the earliest surviving work that contains something which shows Van Eyck's sense of uniqueness and self-belief. His signature. This is something he would continue to do in works that followed, but which was an unknown practice amongst other low country artists at the time. If his incredible talent, fame, and high-ranking status were not enough to ensure his posterity, then his work being recognizable through his own signature would definitely help. Ten of his remaining pieces are signed, often with a variant of the words Als ich kann, meaning, as best I can, but which in his dialect also made a pun on his name, as well as an allusion to art. Kun, Kunen, Kunst. In the years that followed the unveiling of the Ghent altarpiece, he also did various Madonna paintings, often for rich merchants and patricians, no doubt reaching the end of their time, and deeply concerned about the direction the afterlife would take them. In 1434, he painted the Arnolfini portrait, in which he can be seen reflected in a mirror, and which he signed in the modern fashion of a bored teenager with a sharpie. Jan van Eyck was here. 1434. Brilliant. Van Eyck continued to be paid a handsome sum by Philip the Good, clearly maintaining their close relationship. Philip would be the namesake and godfather of Jan's first child with his wife Margrethe, and records still exist to show how much the Duke continued to care for the well-being of his painter. Not only was his income protected and defended by the Duke himself, but he also received hefty pay rises. In 1435, Philip wrote to his financiers that Van Eyck had not been paid, and that if they did not want to anger the prince further, they had better amend that situation quick-smart. In that same year, Philip then guaranteed him pay for life, with a fixed sum that was also then increased several times over. Furthermore, Van Eyck continued in his secret agent work for the Duke, in 1440 being tasked to provide some wooden panels and other mysterious objects to Philip, for which he would be paid the following year. However, in July of that following year, 1441, Jan van Eyck died. He left his wife, children, and probable brother and sister, Lambert and Margrethe, behind, the responsibility falling to them to take over his workshop and unfinished work, much as they had probably done for their brother Hubert 15 years earlier. After Jan died, he was buried in the graveyard at St. Donatian's Church in Bruges. Duke Philip paid his wife the sum 
of his annuity as a measure of respect and concern for his friend's bereaved family. Philip seems to have mourned the loss of a man he had known for over 20 years. They were of roughly the same age and had first met when both in their 20s. Given the length and terms of their relationship, we can assume that they were friends. Perhaps each saw the trajectories of the other reflected in himself and maybe appreciated the extent to which each was contributing to shaping a new low country identity. Philip had inherited a dominant set of territories, just as Jan had inherited a dominant set of skills. They both enjoyed an environment in which these advantages could be exploited and in which they could each flourish. Although their early careers had been in the southern low countries, it was in Holland that they first really flexed on a grander scale. Jan at the court of John of Bavaria, and Philip by annexing Holland following John of Bavaria's death. These steps in turn allowed both of them to ascend into internationally influential realms. Philip became arguably the most powerful prince in Western Europe, and Jan arguably its greatest artist. And that is why we continue to celebrate his life to this day. His contribution to art and culture was fashioned in the same forge, which gave rise to modern Flemish and Dutch culture and identity. And we cannot speak of one without giving reference to the other. But although Van Eyck's life had ended, his reputation would solidify into a great and lasting legacy. This would not only be within the realms of visual art, but also within the realms of what kind of crazy things can happen to actual art pieces when they hang around for long enough. To this day, the Ghent altarpiece remains incredibly famous, not only for its artistic brilliance and the fact that it is one of the few masterpieces which still hangs in its originally intended building, but also because long after its creator's deaths, its destiny was to occasionally be carted off around Europe, often as a result of some of the greatest political, social, and military events in modern European history. During the Reformation, the altarpiece was directly targeted for destruction by Protestant iconoclasts, and was only saved because people working at Zimbabwe's cathedral prudently removed the panels from the frame and hid them in the tower of the church. When the mob finally broke into the church, they destroyed everything they could. Certainly, if not for this quick thinking in protecting the panels, we would only know of this art piece from the records. In the 19th century, the wing panels would find themselves becoming booty in the Napoleonic Wars and ended up in Berlin at the court of the Prussian king. Eventually, they returned to Ghent, where the whole piece hung for nearly a century until it was taken down and hidden during World War I. After that war, it was retrieved and again put on display. However, on the morning of the 11th of April, 1934, the people of Ghent flocked to the cathedral as rumours had started spreading throughout the city. A great assembly stared up at the famous and now ancient piece, and at the empty spaces where two of the panels had hung only the night before, one depicting John the Baptist and one depicting the righteous judges. 
had both been stolen. Almost instantly, a ransom note was delivered, demanding the payment of 1 million Belgian francs as proof that whoever sent the note was actually in possession of the paintings, the John the Baptist panel was actually returned. Not long after, a man with perhaps the most Belgian name of all time, Arsène Houdetier, a wealthy stockbroker, had a heart attack. As he lay on his deathbed, he summoned his lawyer and teasingly told him that he alone knew where the righteous judge's panel was hidden. He gave the lawyer instructions for how to find information on it. When the lawyer followed these instructions, he found copies of the ransom note, as well as another letter with a tantalizing clue on it, revealing that the panel, quote, rests in a place where neither I nor anybody else can take it away without arousing the attention of the public, end quote. Many people have since tried to solve the mystery of the lost righteous judges panel, and numerous theories have abounded, including that it was stolen by members of the church itself to cover financial losses that they had incurred by making poor investments. During World War II, the Germans even sent an art investigator called Heinrich Kern to Ghent to investigate. He became convinced the panel was still in the cathedral, but alas, he too could not locate it. This remains a common theory, actually, and it was given extra weight by the fact that Hudatir apparently told his wife, quote, if they'd let me search for it, I'd stay in the vicinity of the cathedral, end quote. As for the remaining panels of the altarpiece, during World War II, they were at first protected by agreements between German and Belgian authorities, but probably unsurprisingly, these agreements were soon completely disregarded by the Nazis, who stole the altarpiece and locked it in a castle before hiding it in a salt mine. Towards the end of the war, the Allied forces devised a fantastically named task force, the Monuments Men, charged with retrieving as much stolen art as they could. They found the Ghent altarpiece, returning it badly damaged, but still together to Ghent in 1945. Unfortunately, a lot of the Monuments Men's good work was undone with the terrible 2014 George Clooney film of the same name. In the years after the war, the altarpiece, minus the Righteous Judges panel, has remained in St. Barbos, where Jan van Eyck first presented it nearly 600 years ago. In pursuit of the missing panel, the church has been searched six times since the 1940s, including an in-depth x-ray of the entire building. In 2018, an engineer and an author pushed a theory that there were other clues left in the last letter of Khudatir, pointing to a small square in Ghent, Kalanderberg, and posited that the righteous judge's panel lay under the heavily used cobblestone paving. So integral is the Ghent altarpiece to the hearts and minds of locals. The Ghent authorities had to plead with Gentenaars not to take to the street with their own pickaxes searching for it. However, like every other theory thus far, a search of the square yielded nothing. The case remains unsolved and is still being actively investigated by the police in Ghent. 
In 2012, an extensive restoration of the Ghent altarpiece began under the supervision of Belgium's Royal Institute for Cultural Heritage. In the course of this restoration, it was discovered that most of the panels had been modified with a particular type of varnish sometime in the 16th century. When the mystic lamb itself was cleaned up, its face took on a completely different and, some have argued, more humanoid appearance. Twitter erupted as people claimed that the restorators had given the lamb's face the look of having had Botox injections. Actually, it was that we had been looking at a different lamb face than that originally painted by a fun Ike hand. For a really comprehensive look at all the panels of the restored piece, visit www.closer to fun Ike, one word, dot kikirpa, that's K I K I R P A dot B E. Closer to fun Ike dot kikirpa dot B E. And thus ends our story of Jan van Eyck, the man, the myth, the legend. As we have seen, it was a life of influence and experience, and which happened in concurrence with a period of immense social, political, and cultural change in the Low Countries. Van Eyck was an active player in the movements that caused these changes. Of his most renowned artwork, in his own day the Ghent altarpiece became an esteemed sight, for both locals and visitors to Ghent, but much of its continued fame stems from what happened to it in the centuries after Jan died. It has been targeted for destruction and looted, the panels have been split up and reassembled more than a few times, and finally, two of them were stolen, with one of them remaining missing to this day. The Ghent altarpiece truly carries a sense of mystery, appropriate to the life of the man who finished it. With this in mind, it is exciting to think of what further intrigue the future has in hold for the incomparable legacy of Jan van Eyck. Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com. This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com.